to Psalms chapter number 9. Psalms chapter number 9. What a blessing to be with you tonight. Good to be in the house of the Lord. If we had what we deserved, we'd be in hell tonight. And uh, and if we just had what's coming to us, most of us would be locked up. So you say amen to that. But I'm thrilled that we're here tonight in the Lord's house. Psalms chapter number 1. And uh, we're going to read the first 10 verses of this psalm. And then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Psalms chapter number 9, verse number 1. The psalmist says, I will praise thee, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will show forth all thy marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in thee. I will sing praise to thy name, O thou most high. When mine enemies are turned back, they shall fall and perish at thy presence. For thou hast maintained my right and my cause. Thou sattest in the throne, judging right. Thou hast rebuked the heathen, thou hast destroyed the wicked, thou hast put out their name forever and ever. O thou enemy, destructions are come to a perpetual end, and thou hast destroyed cities, their memorial is perished with them. But the Lord shall endure forever. He hath prepared his throne for judgment. And he shall judge the world in righteousness. He shall minister judgment to the people in uprightness. The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. And they that know thy name will put their trust in thee. For thou, Lord, hast not forsaken them that seek thee. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. What a blessing to be in your house. Uh, Lord, I pray that you'd take your word and you'd bless it tonight. Lord, I know there may be uh, much in my life that to look at it through the eyes of righteousness cannot be blessed. But Lord, I know that your word can always be blessed. And I know that how we stand whole in Jesus Christ can be blessed. And so, Lord, I pray that you bless yourself tonight, bless your word tonight, and through that, Father, bless your people, speak to their hearts, that you might receive the glory, and we'll be sure to give you the glory, Lord, not to rob you of it, but to grant it unto you, for surely it'll be unto, unto your praise if anything's accomplished, and we'll be sure to thank you for it. Lord, we love you tonight, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. I, I want to spend a few moments walking through some of the verses in this psalm, but I want us to examine them through the prism of one particular phrase that's given to us in verse number 10. I don't know if you noticed it. Uh, Maybe it's just been burning on my heart, but it jumped out at me when I was reading through this passage. It says, And they that know thy name will put their trust in thee. I began to think about what all is involved in a person's name. You know, the book of Proverbs says that a good name is rather be chosen than great riches. What a person's name is, and I don't necessarily mean the letters that make it or the phonetic sounds that express it, but I mean, what is that name attached to? What is the name of God attached to? And why is it that those that know His name put their trust in Him? There's plenty of people whose name I know that I don't trust. Amen? I ain't going to name names now. I don't want to embarrass nobody. But there's plenty of folks that when you get to know them, you trust them less. Uh, Certainly we have seen in the modern political landscape, seems like every time somebody comes along and sings the right political song and hits all the right notes, it it seems like we are wont to trust them and to expect that they're going to do some of the things that they say, but it seems like the more we get to know them, the less that we trust them. Uh, There might be people in your life who you at one time were apt to trust and they said all the right things and seemed to do all the right things and You put your trust in them only to find out that it was misplaced trust. You should have never done that. And when you got to know them, you trusted them less. Now, by the same token, man, there's some folks that the more I get to know them, the more I do trust. 
They prove themselves to be people of character and people of integrity and people of honesty. And the more that I know them, man, the more that I trust them and the more that I'm comfortable putting my care in their hands. Well, the Bible says that the people that know God the best trust Him the most. They that know His name put their trust in Him. Why is that? Well, I began to think about the name of God. This is just a little introduction thought before we get to our message. But let me read a passage to you out of Acts chapter number 4 that talks about the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, now, you remember this passage. Uh, Peter and, and John, they, they by the power of the Lord, healed a man outside of the temple in chapter number 3, and that causes a big old stir. And uh, The Bible says in verse number 5 of chapter 4 that it came to pass on the morrow that their rulers and elders and scribes and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Now, three times, just in rapid succession in that passage, the name of the Lord Jesus is invoked. And they obviously associated deeply the idea of the power of God or the acts of these apostles with the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we sort of get three things there. And I just want to mention them to you and then use them as a way to expand what the psalmist says. When I think about what is involved in a name, the first thing I think is identity. Now, this seems really elementary. I mean, really fundamental. But I think it must be said tonight that when we say a person's name, there's an identity associated with it. Now, we live in a world today where a lot of times a lot of people bear uh, the same name. And, and I, you know, I, I'll refrain from making jokes about the name Toby. There's plenty of them to make tonight. But suffice it to say, there's a few folks out there with my name. And you probably have even more people uh, that have your name out there. But when we talk about a person's name, we're talking about a means whereby to positively identify them. Can I say this? There's only one God. And He has only one only begotten Son. Now, thankfully, we're children of God if we've been born again. But there's only one Jesus Christ. Amen. There's only one Holy Spirit of God. There's only one God the Father. There is only one God. And so when we talk about the name of God, we don't mean that in a generic sense. We mean the God of the Bible. And that's what they sort of lead into here in Acts chapter 4. They said, whose name did you do this by? And what they were asking was, uh, who is the man who gave you the power to do this? We want to know his name. And they say, I'll tell you exactly who it is. It's Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So they, they show his identity there. Number two, they speak to his integrity. When a person's name is invoked, a lot of times what we mean is their integrity. And I could maybe use this word here, the word character. For instance, when the writer of Proverbs says that a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches, he's not talking about a cool sounding name. He's not talking about a really impressive sounding name. But what he's saying is a name that is uh, that is associated with and synonymous with 
character, with integrity. And that's what's spoken of in this passage as well. The earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus. They knew He was Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And they talk about whom He crucified, whom God raised from the dead. He was talking about not just some Jesus. He wasn't only talking about the specific Jesus, but He was also associating it with the life that Jesus had lived. In other words, His character and His integrity. And can I say this? Hey, when we trust the name of God, we're trusting a name that is of impeccable integrity. Of absolute, pure, uh, immaculate righteousness and holiness. There's nothing, uh, there is nothing negative in the name of God. There's nothing sinful in the name of God or unrighteous in the name of God. I wish I could tell you that you'd never have anything bad attached to my name, but I'd have to lie to you to tell you that. You may have to ask the right people. You may have to go back through the right stories, but you'd find things that are associated with my name uh, that I wouldn't be proud of. I'd be ashamed of. And that's true of you as well. But when you're talking about the name of God, there's nothing, nothing soiling. There's nothing sullying about the name of God. He is of impeccable integrity. And then when you think about a name, it's associated with identity and integrity, but it's also got a history that is attached to it. When we speak of someone's name, particularly in the field of history, we're talking about the things that have been achieved by them or through them. And that's sort of what they're talking about here. They said, listen, you've crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. And you want to know what his name can do and how powerful it is. Look at this man that is standing hold before you. Look at the empty tomb and the power of God that raised him. Look at these others that are being born again, that are being saved by God's grace, uh, that are calling on the name of the Lord Jesus and are, their lives are being eternally changed. In other words, look at what the name of Jesus is doing. And so it's with that thought that I want us to consider what the psalmist is saying here. When he talks about the name of God, I think we could say he's talking about the identity of God, who God is specifically. And let me say that the more that you know about Him, the more you'll trust Him. The more that you know of what He reveals of Himself to humanity the more that you'll trust Him. One of the uh, one of the key ways for our faith to grow is to learn more of Him. It's the reason the Bible says faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. When we learn who He is, we trust Him more. When we study through His integrity and His character, His moral righteousness and holiness, uh, we will begin to trust Him. For we'll know that He's a God that never breaks a promise. He's a God that never does anything that is ill or negative towards His people. He's always got their best interest at heart. Uh, he's a God that is trustworthy. But then when we think about His history, what He's done for us. And that's really what I think the psalmist is talking about. What has God done that would make a person trust Him? Well, look back with me in Psalms chapter 9. And I want you to notice about five things that's just sort of hinted at here. And We're not even going to preach them. We're basically going to read them and then go home. You don't believe that, do you? Let me say number one tonight, we trust Him. Look with me at verse 4 because of how He delivers the sinner. He says in verse number 4, the psalmist says, For Thou hast maintained my right and my cause. Thou sattest in the throne judging right. Now remember, the psalmist is going to use all this as a preface to build up to this climactic statement of saying, you know, ever since I've known Him better, I trust Him more. And those that know Him and know what He does and who He is, they trust Him more. And the first statement he makes about what God's done in his life that gives him cause to trust Him regards the Lord maintaining His right and His cause and setting Him in a just position with the Lord. Can I say this tonight? Uh, if God never did anything else for you other than saving you, just saving you should be enough to cause you to trust Him. 
Notice first off how he delivers the sinner in preparing salvation. He says, thou hast maintained my right and my cause. Now this is interesting because it almost as though the psalmist puts God in two different places in the courtroom. Uh, he's describing a scene of judicial, judicial execution of law. And he, he first describes God as the defendant or he describes him as the defense attorney. What is it that a defense attorney does? They maintain the right and the cause of the person that is accused. Now there are times a person might go in and want to defend themselves. There might be times that a person goes in and is defended by someone appointed to them. But traditionally speaking, when you'd have a daysman or a lawyer or a defense attorney, they would come in and it ain't your job to talk. It's your job to let them talk for you. They maintain your right and they maintain your cause. But now wait a minute, is that where God is? He says that God maintained His right and His cause. But then He says, Thou saddest in the throne judging right. So God, He's not only the defense attorney, He's also the judge sitting up on the bench. You know, what a fit picture of how God saves the sinner because that's exactly what He does. He sits as the thrice holy, omnipotent, righteous God upon a throne of righteousness, judging right and judging righteously, but also He sent His Son that He might be our advocate with the Father, that He might die in our place and that He might be able to plead His righteousness and His grace on our behalf. You see, it's all a complete work of God. Now, I believe a man chooses whether to go to heaven or whether he goes to hell, but I don't think he does anything that secures that unto himself. He doesn't do it for God. He doesn't plead his own cause or maintain his own right. Hell is filled with people that have spent their whole lives trying to justify why they ought not be there. Those that go to heaven are those that are willing to step back and say, you know what, I do deserve the worst sentence that could be delivered. I do deserve the judgment that could be passed down. But I'm pleading, I'm casting myself on the mercy of Christ and His righteousness and allowing Him to stand in my place. The fact that God was willing, when you were so lost, when you were so wicked, when you were so worthless, and me too, uh, that he was willing to uh, be in that stead for us, that he was willing to be our daysman, or he was willing to be our, to use a modern term, defense attorney, that he was willing to put his righteousness uh, in the court of the law, in standing in place of our unrighteousness, in preparing salvation, we ought to trust him. Hey, if he'd go to such great lengths to fix a problem for you, you didn't even know you had. You didn't even know. When you was lost, you didn't even know what being lost meant. <laughs> The vast majority of the time you and I spent as lost sinners, we didn't even realize what it was to be a lost sinner. And the fact that He would, through eternity past and through the cross of Calvary and through His righteousness, prepare salvation for us, sounds to me like He's the kind of God that's on the ball, doesn't it? Sounds like He's got control of things. Not only in preparing salvation, but in preserving salvation. He says, Thou saddest in the throne, judging, and I like His next word, judging right. You know, sometimes in a court of law, there'll be uh, something that comes up like, I don't know, they'll fabricate evidence or something like that. I, I haven't heard anything about that lately of you, but they'll, but they'll fabricate evidence in a court of law. And sometimes it can result in a mistrial. And what that means is that you were not able to have a thorough or honest trial. Sometimes a judge, we had this happen a few years ago uh, with a judge named Baumgartner that was morally compromised in a lot of the cases that he presided over when they found out uh, what this man had done. They had to throw those cases out because they were not judged honestly or they were not judged uh, you know, in integrity and they had to throw them out. Uh, the, the person that sits on the bench has a lot to do with the permanence of the sentence that's passed down. Did he judge right or did he not judge right? 
Can I tell you something? Listen, uh, whenever you went before the righteousness of God, the law of God, uh, God didn't let you off the hook. He let the righteousness of Christ exhaust His justice and His holiness. There's no cause for a second trial. There's no need for an appeal. There's nothing coming down the pike. When He judged, He judged right and He put to bed our case. He dealt with it in righteousness. Sounds to me like we can trust that kind of a God that would deal with our biggest problem and deal with it so thoroughly and and so with such forethought and with such righteousness and integrity. He cut no corners. He didn't dismiss any charges. Instead, the Lord Jesus, He paid the price. And if you were to look on the docket, you'd see that that judgment has already been passed and it's already been paid and we've been allowed to go free because another has gone in our stead. So I think he mentions because of how he delivers the sinner. And listen, if God had never done anything else, the fact that he saved you ought to be enough to win your confidence in him. Number two, look at verse five with me. The psalmist says this, Thou hast rebuked the heathen, thou hast destroyed the wicked, thou hast put out their name forever and ever. Now, as David is considering God's righteous judgment, he turns from the judgment of God in his life and the justifying of himself by faith in God. And that's how he got saved. David got saved by faith. The Bible says that righteousness was imputed unto him just like it had been unto Abraham. You can read in Romans chapter 4 about how he was made righteous and God did, did, not, uh, did not condemn him. But then he turns his eye to behold not only how God delivers the sinner, but how God deals with the wicked. And he recognizes, I think about two or three things here. One, he recognizes a present pronouncement that's been made upon them. Number two, he recognizes the consistent application of God's judgment upon them. And then finally, he recognizes the eternal dealing of God with the wicked. In fact, we could maybe say it this way. Notice first off, the exposing proclamation of the wicked. He says, thou hast rebuked the heathen. Can I tell you this, the very first step in God dealing with wickedness in our society, and by the way, wickedness in our lives as well, is He calls it out. He doesn't leave us in darkness regarding what is right and what is wrong. The very first step is you've got to shine a light on it, and that's what God's Word does. Uh, and again, that's true in your life and mine. That's why, listen, when God rings your bell, you ought not get mad at Him. He's doing it because He's trying to help you. Uh, he, you're never going to get help unless He points out where there's sin in your life. And so He points out where there's sin in your life. But on a grand scale, God's Word has exposed what is right and what is wrong. And it has exposed the wickedness of unrighteous mankind. We don't have to wonder what right is. We can go to the Word of God and find what right is. And mankind has sought to warp and, and pollute and, and convolute the Word of God to try to change it, to try to make it mean any number of things. And society has tried to legislate uh, into societal acceptance all sorts of unrighteousness, but all of it to no avail. You know why? Because the Word of God still stands. They can get rid of a lot of things, man. They can memory hold a lot of stuff. They can make bad news stories go away. They can get rid of bad social media posts. They can rewrite history, but they can't do nothing about this book right here because heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. And as such, God has immutably exposed what is right and what is wrong. The fact that God cares enough about us that He shows us how to live right and shows us what is wrong. And wicked men that would seek to, to assault and seek to afflict the people of God. God is not silent about that. God has spoken on the issue and He has exposed them for what they are. Number two, we see the effective prevention of the wicked. He said, Thou hast destroyed 
the wicked. Now, of course, there is a sense in which that has not been fulfilled in totality because there's still wicked men walking around. But David is speaking of it in a more local sense in his life. And, you know, when you go back and look at David's life and, and consider all of the things that, that David had experienced, all the times his life had been imperiled, and yet still he had survived, you know why it was. It's because God cast these men down in his life. God had cast Saul down, and God had cast Naboth down, and God had cast all of these people. God had thrown Goliath down. God had defeated the bear. God had defeated the lion. God had done all these things in his life. And, you know, he's sitting there thinking, you know, in my life, God... God has watched out for me. He has thrown down my enemies when I needed them to be thrown down. God, in dealing with the wicked, listen, we can trust Him that He'll let the wicked go no further than what glorifies His name and what, what effectualizes His will. In other words, he, he, you know, the Bible talks about, and I, and I shouldn't go on a tangent here, but in the book of Psalms, when we read through this just the other day, I can't recall exactly where, I'd have to go look it up, but it talks about how the wicked are the sword of God. And that man is the, is the arm of God. God will use the wicked to his ends and to his means, but he will not permit him to go any further than what is necessary to carry out his will in this world. When the time comes, he has the ability to destroy the wicked. I think sometimes in, in the hostile environment that we are in, it is too easy to relish in the thought of the future punishment of the wicked. I don't think we ought to feel guilty about being happy that the righteousness of God wins out, but I do think we need to recognize this. God has the ability to deal with the wickedness of this world in His way, in His time, and in absolute perfect capability. He will deal with the wickedness of this world. There ain't nobody in this world ever got away with nothing. Nobody. Nobody. Not you, not me, not them. You say, who's them? Whoever you want them to be. Amen. Uh, not us, not, not them, not, uh, not the little guy, not the big guy, not the left, not the right, not the rich, not the poor. Doesn't matter who they are. We've never gotten away with anything. It's either going to be dealt with in the righteousness of Christ through repentance and faith in His name, or it's going to be called to account one day by God's judgment. He destroys the wicked. So we see the effective prevention of the wicked, and then we see the everlasting punishment of the wicked. He says, Thou hast put out their name forever and ever. Can I say this? And again, I, I don't know that as God's people we ought to shout and, and jump and rejoice at this, but there is a part of this that gives me peace, man. The worst is yet to come for the wicked. Now, don't misunderstand me. I want to see them saved by the grace of God, but for the grace of God, I'd be that person. I'd be in that situation. I'd be in that shape. But recognizing this, that God is going to deal with wickedness thoroughly. Thoroughly. He's not going to deal with it lightly. He's going to deal with it thoroughly. He won't leave anything on the table. He'll deal with it appropriately. I'd say this, when we look at through history at how God has dealt with wicked men and wicked nations, it ought to give us confidence that we can trust Him, that He can deal with the problems that are in our world today. One of the great phenomenons when you study in the Old Testament, uh, one of the sort of hallmarks of God's providence that you'll find is, is God would use uh, pagan nations to judge Israel. And He would do that because Israel deserved to be judged. But then God would turn around and judge that pagan nation because in their uh, in their affliction of Israel, they weren't doing it out of righteousness, but they were doing it out of wickedness. And though God had used them for His means, it did not it did not in any way make them less culpable for their own unrighteousness. You can read through. You, he did it with the Babylonians, and and uh, you know that's what the book of Habakkuk is about. You can read through the book of Nahum. He did it with the Assyrians. That's what the book of Assyria or the book of Assyria. That's what the book of Nahum is all about. How he did it with the 
Assyrian Empire. Over and over again, God did this. And it's a reminder that we can trust Him to deal with the wicked in this world. We can trust Him. We don't have to take it in our hands. We can trust Him. One of the things we're growing to realize in these days is how little of it is in our hands. Uh, there was time people used to say, well, you ain't half with just go vote them out. Well, I'm just going to let that sit right there. But hey, listen, God's in control. Man, He's in control of every bit of it. Ain't nobody ever got away with anything. I see how He deals with the wicked. Number three, look at verse six with me. He says this, O thou enemy, destructions are come to a perpetual end. Thou hast destroyed cities, their memorial is perished with them. But the Lord shall endure forever. He hath prepared His throne for judgment. So I think the, the way that He delivers the sinner makes me want to trust Him. The way He deals with the wicked makes me want to trust Him. But then I thought about this, how He defeats the enemy makes me want to trust Him. Now notice first off, who's the person of the enemy? The way He describes He's been talking about wicked men, but He says, Oh, thou, that singular, thou enemy. He's not talking about a multitude of people. He's talking about a singular enemy. Now, David may have had a, a number of people in mind, but I'll tell you who it reminds this New Testament Christian of, and that's our adversary, the devil. We know who our enemy is. Uh, we know who our adversary is. We know who wants to destroy us and derail us and discourage us in our attempt to walk with God. So we don't have any trouble identifying who the enemy is. Well, what does it say God does with the enemy? Well, notice this. He says, O thou enemy, destructions are come to a perpetual end. Now, this is an interesting phrase. The word perpetual means ongoing, right? In, in perpetuity, you'll hear that sometimes. You'll, if you ever sign a contract and it says in perpetuity, just rip it right up, right then, burn it, run away from it, pronounce the, the blood of Jesus on it and get away from it fast as you can. You don't want to sign anything that says in perpetuity because that means through eternity, all right? In perpetuity. Well, so perpetual. But then it says this. Almost, it's almost like an oxymoron. Perpetual end. What that means is this, that that end will never end. It is a statement of finality. In speaking to the enemy, it's almost like David sort of gloats on him and says this, all of your destructions that you're perpetrating on mankind, there's coming a day where they're going to end and they're going to end for good. I see the plan for the enemy. And can I remind you, listen, the devil has a plan for me. The devil has a plan for you. But don't you ever forget that God also has a plan for him. God has a plan for him. He's going to deal with him. We can read through the Word of God and, and see what the plan is, see how that at the end of the tribulation period he's going to be bound in chains and cast into a bottomless pit. He's going to stay there for a thousand years. Then he'll be permitted to go loose to tempt uh, the corners of the world, those that had been born in the Millennial Kingdom and had not had the opportunity uh, to uh, reject Christ. And uh, he's going to be loosed and he's going to be allowed to go... For Free and he's going to draw them from the four corners of the world. And the Bible says that the Lord's going to smite them with the, the power, the fire that comes down from heaven and destroy them. And then he's going to be taken and cast into the lake of fire. And you know, what a fitting description, Brother Ken, when you think about it. A perpetual end. You know what the lake of fire is. It is a perpetual end. The Bible calls it the second death. It is a perpetual end. In. It's the end of the line for him, but it ain't like he just ceases to be. It's not like he's annihilated. He's still going to exist. He's still going to be conscious. He's still going to be tormented. 
but it's going to be the end of the line for his plans, for his power, for his ability, and he'll be in that perpetual end. So I see the plan for the enemy, and then I see the prevailing over the enemy. He says this, Thou hast destroyed cities, their memorial is perished with them. Now this is given in juxtaposition, in comparison, contrast to the next phrase, because he says, But the Lord shall endure Forever. So what he's saying is, devil, there's been some cities and some places and some people that you've destroyed so thoroughly that nobody even knows their name anymore. They're destroyed forever. But he reminds them that there's one thing that he cannot destroy, and that's the Lord of glory. In other words, there's been some people and some places that the devil has outlasted and outlived, but there's going to be one that outlasts and outlives him as well, and that's the Lord. I see the prevailing over the enemy, and he reminds him what this is all for. He says he hath prepared his throne for judgment. In other words, what he's saying is there is a judgment coming, and let me remind you, devil, that the Lord's going to outlive you. So you're going to stand at that judgment one day and have to give an account. You know, I don't, I don't know that we ever talk about that. One day God's going to judge the devil. Everything the devil's ever done is going to be brought up and brought to account. Every family's destroyed. Every church he's destroyed. Every person's life that he's destroyed. Every person he's put in chains and in bondage and gall of iniquity. He's going to be called into account over those things. Man, praise the Lord. He don't get away with it either, does he? So I see how he defeats the enemy. But then look at verse number, uh, verse number eight. I want to show you a fourth thing here. I, I think because of how he dispenses judgment, it makes me trust him. He says this in verse 8, He shall judge the world in righteousness. He shall minister judgment to the people in uprightness. Now I want to make a short statement and then a not so short statement here. The first thing I see is the magnitude of His justice, of His judgment. Excuse me. He shall judge the world in righteousness. Now I'm not going to belabor this. We've sort of been preaching and dancing all around it tonight. But let me just say it right out. No one will escape the judgment of God. He'll judge the whole world in righteousness. But can I take that just a little bitty step farther? Because when it talks about this, He shall minister judgment to the people in uprightness. This is a millennial promise. This is talking about when Jesus sits on the throne of David and if there's conflict between people, they can take their grievance and take it to the Lord. And the Lord in absolute righteous and justice and judgment will administer judgment unto the people. And it reminds me that, listen, not, not only will he judge the world in righteousness in the sense of one day men will be brought into account, but one day the justice and judgment of God will reign supreme over the whole earth. There won't be a corner of this earth where unrighteousness will be permitted to openly defy God. There'll be righteousness everywhere. Man, all those places where they destroyed all these beautiful... I joke with people all the time. Everybody's, everybody's leaving California and moving to Texas right now. And uh, so many of them, they just shut the place down. They built all them wind turbines out there, and now they got froze. Amen. Uh, wind energy only helps you, number one, when the wind blows, and number two, apparently, when it's not cold. You can heat your house with wind energy, just not when it's cold, Brother Ken. That, that's <laughs> because they freeze down whenever it gets cold. But all these people have been moving out of California and moving down to down to Texas and these places. And people have asked me, you know, preacher, where would we go? Where would a person go if they wanted to escape all the insanity? And I told them, man, California. That's the place. All the nuts are leaving and going to Texas. Don't go to Texas. That's the worst place to go. You're all going to show up there in a traffic jam at the same time. Where we need to be going is California. We're going to have to push all the needles and all the trash and all the bio waste off into the ocean but about five years in, the tide will carry all that out and it'll be the Garden of Eden there again. There's a reason people went there in the first place. 
Has it ever dawned on you the justice of God is going to reclaim every corner of this land that's been sullied and soiled by the unrighteousness of mankind? Hey, there's going to come a day that, that the justice of God, the magnitude of His judgment, will be all over the world. And then I see the ministry of His judgment. He says He shall minister judgment to the people in uprightness. Man, when I look at my life, God has been my judge and, and has been my, my portion when I've needed Him to be. You say, preacher, why can I trust God? Because He's always done right by you. Times when you were helpless to be an advocate for your cause, when you were helpless to make a way, God came along and ministered judgment in righteousness in your life. The judgment of God and the justice of God are a ministry in our lives. And God allows those things and, and infuses our life with those things because He loves us and He cares for us. Times when I, there wasn't a thing I could do for my part and for my cause and for my case, but God went before me and God made a way. I'd say this, boy, I'd say we can trust Him. Don't you think so? And then notice this final thing, and I'll be done tonight. Look at verse 9 with me. The Bible says, The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed a refuge in times of trouble. Look at the end of verse 10. I sort of tacked this on with it because it, it, we jumped over our text, but it says, For thou, Lord, hast not forsaken them that seek thee. So why is it that those that know the Lord best trust Him the most? Well, I think it's because they understand they've seen how He delivers the sinner. They've seen that God would not go to all the trouble to save them and then not care for them and in their life and what they need. The fact is, if you need one proof text in your life that God loves you and that you can trust Him, all you have to look at is the day you got born again. He proved to you that day that He cares about you more than even you care about your own self. I think because of how He deals with the wicked. I've looked across the pages of history and seen that time and time again, God came to the to the part of His people and dealt with wicked men and, and unrighteous men. And there may be times, obviously, as as society and as this world is spiraling out of control and as the God of this world is solidifying His grip in society, there's times that wicked men prevail, but never do any of those things happen that it is lost on God or escapes God's eye or God's record. God deals with the wicked. And I think we can trust Him because of that. I think we can trust Him because of how He defeats the enemy. Because our greatest enemy, the one that loathes and hates our soul, that love to send us to hell and laugh and dance about it, uh, that the Lord has a plan for him and is going to deal with him. The God of this world, the one uh, that the spirit of Antichrist emanates from, that seeks to uh, afflict and, and assault and oppress the people of God, the one that breathes corruption into human civilization, that one is going to be dealt with one of these days. God has a plan for him. I think because of how he dispenses judgment, because he's come to your behalf, your defense, time and again, just like he has mine. But then I would say finally, because of how he defends the believer. He is a uh, bulwark for the righteous. His name is a high tower. We can run into it and we are saved. I see number one here that he is a present refuge. It says, the Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in the times of trouble. Can I make a simple statement here? Every time you've needed him, he's been there. And that's the reason the more people know him, the more they trust him. You know why? Because the longer they know him, we sing the song every once in a while in the choir uh, that, you know, he, he only grows sweeter day by day. The longer that I serve him, the sweeter he grows. You know why that is? It's not that He loves us more day by day. He loves us uh, eternally and impeccably and infinitely. Before we ever even knew Him, He loved us that way. Uh, even if we rejected Him, He'd still love us that way. 
Uh, that love doesn't grow, but you know, the more time we spend with Him, the more we see how much He loves us. The more we recognize how much He loves us. And the reason people that know Him the best trust Him the most is they've seen God deliver time and again. They've been in those darkest moments of, of life when they when despair was creeping in and the world was crashing down and they ran into the bosom of God and prayed and wept and asked God for His help and His wisdom and His strength and God was there in those times. And they look at it and say, you know, He's been there for me every time I've needed Him. I reckon I can still keep on trusting Him even now. Then also, I think not only because He's a present refuge, but because He's a perpetual refuge. The psalmist says this, Thou, Lord, hast not forsaken them that seek Thee. I've known lots of people in my life that be, they'd be there for you, rock solid, a million percent for a little while. Until the going got tough, until your interests and their interests uh, were at odds, and then all of a sudden they was in the wind. But you know God's not that way. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. Now, there's been things that you've done where you've run off from God, but there's never been a thing you've ever been able to do that's run God off. He's always been there. He's always been present. I'm not saying we haven't walked away from Him, been disobedient, allowed a distance to grow in our fellowship, but every time that we've needed Him, He's always been right there. So why would we think He won't be there now? Why would we think He won't comfort us now? See, the truth is the people that can't trust Him, can't trust Him or won't trust Him, because they don't know Him very well. Now, don't misunderstand me. I, I I have my moments of battling with trusting the Lord. And I'm not meaning to say that if you struggle in your faith uh, that you don't love Him or that you don't know Him. But I'm saying that the, the recipe, the, the answer if you are struggling in your faith is to get up close to Him and get to know Him better. Read in His Word. Recall and remember His goodness and grace in your life. Study who He is, His character. There ain't nothing in this book that God's afraid for you to find out about Him. Nothing. There ain't nothing in this book that God's afraid for you to find out about. Go ahead and get in there. Study it all. Get to know Him. And you'll find that the better you know Him, the more you'll trust Him. Let's bow together this evening as a musician comes to play. Brother Tim or Miss Connie, either one, come play for us. And uh, I want to give you an opportunity to come and, and talk to the Lord. You could have some burdens in your life that you've been struggling with. And if that's so, you know, tonight would be a great time to cast those burdens, cast those cares upon Him, for He careth for you. Uh, go ahead and, 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 and just put them on his shoulders. Trust him with them. You say, but preacher, I'm struggling. Well, listen, I can't help you, but he can. Come to him and let him be for you what you can't be for yourself, what no one else can be. Let him show himself trustworthy in your life. Father, I love you. I thank you for your word. I pray you'd bless this invitation in Jesus' name.